Well, today we've reached our final part in the uh, study of David and Goliath. Seems like it's taken forever to get there, hasn't it? But uh, th- there's really a lot to learn. And in fact, the, the more I've studied on this, it just, it's like an octopus with tentacles. There's so much out there that uh, you, could, you could probably double the amount of weeks that we did in this. But uh, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 50, verse 5, 0. We'll read through the end of that chapter. Scripture reads, Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in, his, in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shaarim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from ceasing from chasing the, Phil- the Philistines and plundered the camps. Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapon in his tent. Now when Saul saw that David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, You inquire whose son this youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and the Philistine's head was in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much to know, Lord, even more here than what normally would meet our eyes. Father, there is so much here to apply. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you will give us understanding that we might know the truth. And Lord, that you would add to us spiritual strength so that we may apply its truths. And Father, Father from, from the knowledge that, receive, that we would receive from your word, Lord, I ask that you would grant to us wisdom, Lord, because there is no wisdom without biblical, spiritual God-given knowledge. Now, Lord, we just ask that uh, you be glorified today in our service. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin this final part with this question. Can, should, or would you believe an enemy of God? When somebody that hates God tells you something and commits to something, should you believe that person? Would you believe that person? If this person is absolutely despised the thought of God, cursed God, would you believe that person? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 8 and 9, if you want to look there, now we've, we've, we were there earlier, but 1 Samuel chapter 17, look at, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, he stood and shouted to the, this is Goliath, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able, listen very carefully now, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Now see, now there's a commitment made, evidently not just his commitment, probably a commitment given him by the commanders of the army, uh, of the Philistines, saying, listen, if this person defeats you, you tell them that we will, we will serve them. But if you beat them, they're going to serve us. So it wasn't just a, 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 you know, a, an agreement that he made with himself that he's going to tell Israel. Uh, uh, Goliath was, was, was certain that he was, going to, he was going to win this battle, that the Philistines had made this commitment. He says, if you can, if you can beat me, if you can beat me, then, then we will serve you. Well, that was a commitment they made, and obviously that's not true, is it? Uh, simply stated, Goliath is just saying, if you defeat me, we're going to serve you. If, we, if I defeat your man, then you'll serve us. Now then, that seems pretty cut and dry to everybody, doesn't it? But let's look at the words. What does Jesus have to say about believing somebody, putting your trust and your confidence in somebody that is opposed to the very idea that there is a God? In, uh, in, in John 8, 44, Jesus speaking uh, to, to those who said that they were going to be uh, his new followers, his new believers. You know, and that's an interesting passage, by the way. If you look at John chapter 8, and starting about verse 30 or 32, uh, there it says that many believed on Jesus. And then Jesus comes back later on. He says, you are of your father, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. The very ones that said that they believed in him, Jesus, you're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, the person, the person who detests the idea of God, the person who has set God aside, put God on the back burner, if you will, that person, Jesus, that, that person is a liar because they are of their father, who is a liar, who is also the devil. And in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Folks, that's Goliath. Evil, demon-filled in character, a liar, scheming, and uncircumcised of heart. And should the army of God's chosen people ever for a moment cast their hopes and desires upon the promises of one who is totally and spiritually removed and depraved and, and, and opposed to the covenant of God? Upon Goliath's defeat, there was no surrender, there was no treaty, there was no laying down of arms. They made a commitment. If you beat our man, we'll be your servants. But you see that that was not true. They were deceptive. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you want to find out about deception, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Because that's exactly what Satan is. He's deceptive. He will lie. He filled Goliath's heart. He filled their minds of the, of the commanders of the Philistine armies. They said, we will serve you, but no. 
They were only out there to deceive the people of Israel. Verse 51 of our text reads, David ran. Listen, David ran. By the way, this is the second time David runs. The first time David runs to, to, to face his foe. And after he defeats his foe, says David ran, he runs again. He stands over the Philistine and took his uh, glass sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. Now, right at this point, right now, we would think that the story is over. There's no more to say. That the battle also is ended. That there's, there's no more war left. But no, the Philistines, rather than surrendering as promised, they, they run and when defeated, when defeated, the devil never surrenders. Just like the Philistines. When the Philistines were defeated, they ran. When Satan is defeated, church, listen to this. When Satan is defeated, he is not going to stay there and surrender to you. I don't care what you may think. And I don't care what some preacher tells you. Satan is not going to lay down his arms and say, I guess you got me. He is going to run. How do we know he's going to run? Because Scripture says so. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will do what? He will flee from you. He is not going to lay down his arms and surrender. He's not going to give in to you. He's not going to give up. He's not going to yield to you. He's going to come back again and again and again and again. What I would like to us, for us to focus on at this point, and we must spend most of the time on just one verse, and that is verse 54 of our text. So if you look at verse 54, it says, Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. What is so significant about that? Why, why is that a key verse? Notice, if you will, that there are two things that David does upon having defeated Goliath. First of all, he removes Goliath's head from his body in verse 51. Do you see that? Verse 51, he takes, he takes Goliath's sword. And uh, by the way, I, just so you know this, Goliath had a very special sword. Uh, the, the, the swords back then that the Israel army had were, were called sickle swords. Do some of you ever remember when, uh, I don't know, when I was a, a younger person, my dad, we, we lived next to a, an empty lot, and my dad said, uh, he says, Pat, go, go take this sickle and cut down some of those weeds by the house. So I'd go out there, and I'd take that sickle. And you remember, anybody ever see a sickle? And you just take that sickle, and I'd just hit, sharpen that edge, and I'd just cut down those weeds. Well, that's a sickle. But there's this thing called a sickle sword. It didn't have as much as a curvature to it, but it did have a curvature to it and it had a handle on it, either wood or, or it could be made out of stone or ivory, whatever. But they would have a handle on it and they would take, and what they sharpened was not the inside like a regular sickle, but the outside of it. So when they, when they, when they fought with an enemy, they would take that sickle sword and they would try to cut the guy's head off with it or, or kill him, whatever, how, in any way they could. It's not meant for stabbing. You don't stab with a sickle sword. You, you slice with it. But Goliath had a very unusual sword. And it was a, a, a new weapon of that day. It was a straight two-edged sword. And you think, oh my goodness, a two-edged sword. Like that's some big, 
I want to tell you, folks, if you, if you, look, at, if you look at history, you know, people always were creating weapons. Uh, who was it? I think it was, I think it was Martin Luther back in the 1500s. He thought for sure the end of the world was coming. He says, we have developed the most, the most horrendous, ungodly weapon ever known to man, the longbow. If he were to look at the world today and what we have, he'd say that longbow is absolutely nothing. I mean, boy, if you can find something that can shoot 100 yards, you can kill a person 100 yards away. Now we can kill them 10,000 miles away just by pressing a button. But the two-edged sword, and he took that two-edged sword and probably with two hands just sliced his head off with that two-edged sword. But he does two things. He takes his head. I could imagine the head must have been this big because the guy is 10 foot tall practically. Big head. And did he hold it by the hair? I don't know how he did it. Did he put it in a sack? I don't know. He takes it. And he goes to Jerusalem. Now, you know, Jerusalem's not like walking from here over to Tony's Donuts. <laughs> it's a 20-mile trip. 20 miles of carrying this head with you. It's like carrying a, a bowling ball. I don't know, maybe heavy. I don't know, have any idea how much it would weigh. But for 20 miles, he carries this head he takes it to Jerusalem. The second thing he does is he takes glass weapons and takes them to his tent. So here's the question. One word. Why? Why would, why would anybody do that? I suppose we're going to think it okay uh, to take the guy's weapons. But who would ever think about Carrying a head, a severed head, for 20 miles. It's not like he had an SUV to put it in or a chariot. He, he walked with it. 20 miles. So as to the question pertaining to Goliath's head, it was most likely taken to Jerusalem to cause the Jebusites who lived in that city. And Jerusalem at that time was called Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. It's also called Jerusalem, but the Jebusites lived in the city of Jebus. And he wanted them to know that he took care of Goliath, and he's coming someday to take care of them. He wanted to put fear and terror into their hearts. Let me just pause here for just a moment, because this is so important for us to understand this. I want to give a little historical lesson at this point. Around 1850 B.C., when anybody there? 1850 B.C., the Jebusites, the Jebusites gained control of the southeast section of ground that we would call today Jerusalem. Uh, let's pull up that map over here. Okay, there it is. You see this lower city right there? Well, not all of this, but this section right here, just this section where, my, where that red dot is at, that section of all of Jerusalem, that section belonged to the Jebusites. It sat up on a hill. 
It belonged to the Jebusites, and they had a, a huge, huge, enormous wall around it. And, and even in the time of Joshua, they would say that you will never take this city. The Israelites took control of everything, everything around it. They lived, every, everything around all that city that you call Jerusalem, they lived in that all around Jebus. But they couldn't get into Jebus, the city. So David takes that head up there. And he wants to strike fear and terror into the hearts of those residents of Jebus. Of that lower southeast section where the pool of Siloam is at. And by the way, let me just, this doesn't work very well, does it? If I hit the right button, it will. Okay, can you see that? There we go. Right there. You see this temple up here? That temple? Do you know what that is? That temple up there, that is the mount that David bought from Arana. He says, I, I, need a, I need to put an altar right here. And there is a rock there, a huge rock. And it was there, it was there that supposedly, reportedly, traditionally, that, uh, that Abraham was going to offer Isaac. It was there that David built that altar. It was there that they built the temple of God. It was there that if you go there today in, in, the, in the dome that the, that the Muslims have right there, that in that dome, that rock is still there. And the reason it's still there because Abraham is their father also. They're not going to destroy. That, that, that dome is called the dome of the rock. That rock is still there. Thousands of years later, it is still there. So you have that, that lower city. That lower city is, is mounted up high. And the Jebusites owned that. They controlled it. David... David says, no more. And in fact, this, this, uh, this area of ground around Jebus, even though it's occupied by the Israelites, that later, later in history, Jerusalem is going to become the place where all the kings of, of Judah are going to live. Prior to that, I don't have a map showing it, but prior to that, you go down way south into the, into the middle of the, of the tribe of Judah. There is a city there just straight down south, straight south of Jerusalem. There's a city there called Hebron. That used to be where King Saul was at and was for, for the first seven years of David's life where David ruled as king. But David didn't want to be in Hebron. He wanted Jerusalem. That lower, that lower portion, which says the lower city, that is now called the city of David. Listen, it is called the city of David. If you go to Jerusalem today, there is the city of David. When you read in Scripture that Jesus was from the city of David. They're not talking about this city of David. There's two cities of David. The other city of David is what? Bethlehem. 
Two cities of David. This one that used to be called Jebus, that lower southeast section of the city, that, that was, that was in, its, in and of itself the entirety of Jerusalem. But there was Israelites living all around it. Except for that one section. They couldn't control it. That's why he took that head there. Jebusites, you see this head? It's going to happen to you. When David became king over all Israel, the capital city would have been moved from Hebron, 20 miles south. He moves it north to Jerusalem. And his objective was to move into Jerusalem, and it would be the capital city forever. By the way, you remember just about a couple of years ago when they renamed Jerusalem as the capital city, the stir that it caused in Palestine? Do you remember that? Just a couple of years ago. You know why that was? Because David took it from the Jebusites. He destroyed those pieces. He said, there will never be, there will never be another Jebusite in this city. Ever permitted in a city. When they renamed Jerusalem, then the capital, just a couple of years ago, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it caused a stir. It's a stir in Palestine because they went back to that old city again and said, this belongs to the Jews. It's like history repeating itself. So as I stated earlier, his bringing the head of Goliath was to bring fear and terror into the hearts of the Jebusites who occupied the city. If you read 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7, if you were to read that, you would notice that David as king, when David becomes king, Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. You close the book out of 1 Samuel, I think it's about chapter 28 or something like that. When you read 1 Samuel, at the end of at the end, the last chapter, the Philistines kill Saul. And what do they do? If you look, if you read the scripture, they cut Saul's head off. Why would they do that? Because David took Goliath's head. They took Saul's head off. But in 2 in Samuel now, early part of 2 Samuel, verses 6 and 7, about 5, 6 and 7, you will notice that David as king does, eventually he captures the city and, does, and then he moves into Jerusalem and establishes it as his capital city for the, for, the rest, for the rest of all the kings of Judah. For all the rest of the kings, all up until the time up until the time of Zedekiah, the, the last, the last of the kings of Judah, from about 900 and something B.C. until about 587 B.C., some 400 years or so, that is the capital city. There's still more to learn about the matter of taking glass head. In, in Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, this, this is what it says, Joshua 15, 63. Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah, could not, listen, could not drive them out. 
So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. That's in Joshua. Judges 1.21. But the sons of Benjamin. Now, Judah and Benjamin are linked together. When, 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 the northern, when the northern tribes separate from the, south, uh, the, uh, the southern tribes, the southern tribes are what? The southern tribes are Judah and Benjamin. Those two are linked together. The rest of them go with the northern kingdom, and they fall into idolatry. But it says, the sons of Benjamin, in Judges 1.20, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem is right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. It sits right on the border of those two tribes. So both the Benjamites and the, and the, and the uh, people from Judah could not drive the Jebusites out until 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7. I want to pause here and ask you a question. What do you suppose happened when the people of God allowed the people of the Jebusites to live together in Jerusalem? What happens when God's people move in with unbelievers? I'll show you. I would like for you to please turn to Judges chapter 1. Would you look at Judges, just go back a couple of books, look at Judges chapter 1. In Judges chapter 1, verses uh, 27, 29, 30, 31, 33, 34, I want you to look at these. Verse 27, okay, chapter 1 of Judges. But Manasseh did not take possession, okay? Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out. Verse 30, 33, Naphtali did not drive out. Verse 34, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. You see all that? I want you to do one more thing. Just look at Judges chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. In Judges 2, 2 and 3, after all, you have all those tribes that could not drive out the inhabitants of those, of those nations. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, And as for you, you shall make no, listen, you shall make no covenant or, with, with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is what is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become, listen, they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Look at our text at verses 11 and 12. But it talks about David re refusing to continue to allow the Jebusites, I mentioned this, to, to stay, a, uh, to be a part of Jerusalem. In fact, I think that's in 2 Samuel uh, that's what, that's what it is. 2 Samuel. He refuses to let them stay in Jerusalem. He gets, he gets rid of every, all the Jebusites in that city. So now we come to our second question. Why and for what reason did David take Goliath's weapons? And I want you to really focus on this. Now we talked about his head. His head was basically to show the Jebusites he wanted to bring fear and terror into the hearts of the Jebusites. This is what I did to Goliath. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be dead. 
So, but now he takes the weapons and he says he puts them in his own tent. But he does more than just put, put them in his tent. I want you to follow with me, please. This, this is perhaps uh, where we might all learn a, a spiritual lesson and application for us today. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, we find that David is being hunted down by a jealous King Saul. David is being hunted down by King Saul. And David then goes to a place called Nob. Now, Nob is just slightly north. Just a, It'll be like from going from here to whatever, whatever town is just right next north of you here. Uh, I don't even know what direction north is from this church. Is that that way? Somewhere. Don't ask me about directions ever. But Nob is just right north of Jerusalem. And it is located in the tribe, just over the border into the tribe of Benjamin. Remember I said Jerusalem is on the line between Benjamin and Judah? Well, Nob is just slightly into Benjamin, just north of Jerusalem. And during the time of King Saul, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was at Nob. And Ahimelech was the priest over Nob. He's the head priest over the place called Nob, and in this place called Nob is the Ark of God. So Ahimelech is, is, the, is, the, is the person who is there, and Ahimelech then was given Goliath's sword by David. He is given that sword, and this sword was offered by David to Ahimelech as a dedication offering. Please hear me out now. It was offered as a dedicate as an offering to the Lord, a dedication offering to the Lord. And it sets it sets in this place where the ark of God is at. So let's apply this offering to you and I today. David hands Ahimelech the priest this sword, it's dedicated to the Lord. I want to ask you this now. What are we, what are you and I bringing to our high priest, who is Jesus Christ, as an offering? David offered the sword. What are you bringing to God as a dedication, a dedicatory offering to God? Romans 12:1 says, Therefore, Paul writing, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So here we have dedicated ourselves to him, supposedly. We say in this church that we have dedicated ourselves to God. When we come together as believers to worship God, do we really present ourselves to Him? Are you and I dedicating ourselves to God? As David said, take this sword. It's a dedication offering to the Lord. Are we taking ourselves as a dedication offering to God? Paul, as we read in Romans 12, 1, speaks of our spiritual service of worship. David dedicated the sword he had captured, and should we not dedicate ourselves to him who has, listen, should we not dedicate ourselves to him who has rescued us from that which Satan has held us captive to? We have been held captive. As Goliath 
as Goliath held Israel captive for 40 days. They were fearful to, they were fearful to approach him. And David slays the giant and offers the weapons to the Lord as a dedication offering. When we were held captive and Christ rescues us and we are now set free in Christ through his blood, is it not that Christ has now captured our lives? And because he has now captured our lives, are we not supposed to serve him? You are either, folks, listen very carefully. You're either held captive to Satan. You're either held captive to Satan. You live in the domain of darkness. Ephesians 2 1 says that if you live in the domain of darkness, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. There is no spiritual, moral ability that you have. You are dead to the things of God. You have no ability. And I, no, today I was watching this guy on TV, and he says the reason why bad things happen in this world is because people have free will. That's baloney. That's not the reason why bad things happen in this world. The reason bad things happen in this world is because Satan has entered in because of man's sin. It's not that we're not using our free will properly. A person who is dead to Christ cannot properly use free will because it is dead. D-E-D-D. Dead. It is not, is it not a tragedy, my friends, that many, many look at worship today not as an opportunity of self-denial, of cross-bearing, of being a follower of Jesus, but so many see worship and they measure its effectiveness in terms of how it impacts us. How do I feel about it? How it pleases me? Do I like its music? Do I like this traditional look? Do I like this? Do I like that? Do I like whatever, whatever, whatever you like and don't like? We come to a, we come to a, a quote unquote, a church house, a, a house of worship, and, and, and we measure the effectiveness of worship by what we sing, by what we hear. If it doesn't excite us, if it doesn't make us jump up and down, then evidently we're not cool, clever, and entertaining, so evidently the worship is not pleasing to us. How does it impact us? How does it please us? How, how does it motivate me? What selfish desires? There's no dedication there. None. It's receptivity. How do I receive things? Worship is not about receiving... Listen, it's about dedicating things, not receiving things. What, what are we dedicating to God? David's motive was not what is in it for David, but more the fact that he wanted everyone to know. 1 Samuel 17, 44. He wanted every, everyone to know that there is a God. Listen, folks, there is a God in Israel. You'll find that in 1 Samuel 17, 40, 
46 rather, not 44, 46. Let me ask you, is there, is there a God, is there a God in America? Is there a God in Missouri? Is there a God in North County, St. Louis? Is there a God in Hazelwood? Is there a God at Hazelwood Baptist Church? Is there a God? Yes, there is a God. He's the God who's creator God. He's redeemer God. He's sustainer God. And yes, even though we face a giant of an enemy, we have this blessed assurance. Jesus Christ is our fortress. He is our rock. And he will never fail us. In that great hymn of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the third stanza of that hymn says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his word to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And Martin Luther closes out and says, Amen. One little word shall fail him. The final verse in 1 Samuel 17, 58 reads, Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David standing above that, that head in his hand, blood dripping from it. Whose son are you? Bloodstained, his hand is probably bloodstained. His legs are probably bloodstained. Blood is everywhere, flowing on the floor. Whose son are you? I'm the son of your servant from Bethlehem. My friends, do you see the parallel there? Jesus, I am your servant. I am the shepherd of my father's sheep. I am from Bethlehem. I am the Christ, the son of the living God, where blood has flowed everywhere all over his body. I'm your servant from Bethlehem. Folks, that's a champion. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this day, Lord, that in Jesus we do have a true champion. Lord, he's never been defeated, will never be defeated. And Lord, uh, he slays all giants that oppose your church. Your church is your body, your bride, the household of faith, your saints, your chosen, your called out ones. We are the church, Lord. Father, may we never surrender. May we never retreat. May we never run in fear from our enemies, Father. But in Christ, may we be found faithful, Lord. You are a true champion. Lord, you are the line of the tribe of Judah. And you love your people. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.